Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. I'm in uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, we are, are two days away, three days, two and a half days away from Jesus' um, uh, crucifixion. Uh, the events are beginning, the pot is beginning to move towards boil, if whatever imagery is helpful to you. Darren, uh, over the last couple of weeks, has let you in on the ping pong match, on the tennis match between Jesus and his opponents as they, recognizing his rising popularity, are wanting to, to find a way to set him aside, um, uh, to, to discount him, so, so that the rising tide of popularity, which they rightly discern is coming, uh, is, is truncated, is cut off, is, is eliminated. And so uh, they, they, are, they are sending their big guns out to ask him the questions that they have, have, have been playing with and, 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 and wrestling with and arguing for hours and hours and hours um, uh, uh, about. They want to know not just where Jesus fits anymore, which was the nature of the inquiries at the beginning of his ministry. Now they want to take him out. Now they want to demonstrate that he doesn't have competence for the kinds of deep theological questions that have occupied the great minds uh, in the Sanhedrin, in the council, and so on and so forth. So they send out 
Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and Herodians and all kinds of people to try and, and, and set Jesus on the defensive. And it, 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 it's a, I used the imagery just a second ago of, the, of a tennis match, and I think that there's kind of an image of that that, that if, you can, if, you, if you ever watch the tennis match, you watch the crowd, right? You, you, you know, it's kind of this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So what you've got is the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all of the Herodians, all of these people who are aligned in a, really an unholy relationship because these people hated each other, but the, but the enemy of my enemy is my, my friend. Do, do you see? So, so they're aligned together for the first time perhaps in their history with their hatred for Jesus. So these guys are doing tag team kind of tennis match where, where they send out their biggest. And, and have you ever watched a tennis match between somebody who thinks they're good uh, versus somebody who actually is good? Do, do, do you know? It's, it's, uh, these guys are going out. They've got the racket. They are putting top spin. They are putting, they, they are smacking it back. They are, they are lobbing it. They are doing, they are, they are, re, they are moving. And Jesus is standing on the other side of the court just kind of, Gently deacon it back over and kind of just, he barely moves. He's not dislodged. He's not anxious. barely breaking a sweat. You ever, ever watch that kind of thing? Jimmy Connors, Arthur Ashe. You, 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 if you're old, you, you know what I'm sorry. You shouldn't have laughed before I said my old joke. But anyway, um, do, 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 do you see what I mean? Or, or, or you, so you watch these guys just, just knocking themselves out, and Jesus is not bothered. In fact, he demonstrates capacity in any field that they want to raise. So that's what's been going on. They send finally one guy out that just, well, what is? And, and you can hear in his question a genuine longing. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are not different commandments. They are two sides of the same commandment. You can't love your neighbor if you don't love God. You can't love God if you don't love your neighbor. The end of the day. And they recognize in him a superior um, opponent, and so the text says they asked him no more questions. They gave up. Jesus, however, has not left the field of battle. Now he wants to ask them some questions. Seeing as how we're all assembled here, and we've got a few more minutes left, let me ask you a question. And then he begins. So we're in Mark chapter 12, and if you need Bibles, uh, we've got a few around the side. Anybody need one that didn't, uh, didn't get one? Okay, we all good? All right, so we're in Mark chapter 12. I'm on page 709 in this, in this version. Uh, we're, we're good, yeah? Okay, so 709, and then we'll begin at verse um, 35. Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. He asked, so why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? But David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now this is a, a little bit of a strange question. We don't think in these terms. 
in our, in, in, in our culture. But remember, this is a culture that was expecting Messiah to come. But their understanding of Messiah, their understanding of the Christ, was limited to a political and military understanding. The, the thought was that the son of David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, would come back into Jerusalem, David's capital city, the city that he established as the capital of Israel, David would come back into that city and would lead us in a military and political resurgence of Israel's former glory. That was what they understood and expected from Messiah. So their understanding of Messiah, again, was limited to a political and military presence who would help them, lead them in battle against the Romans and get these guys out of here. And remember, Jesus is saying this in the week leading up to uh, the, the, the uh, Passover, which was the annual festival in which they commemorated their deliverance out of Egypt. So this is a big deal. And this is a big time. Especially if you have even a hint of a thought of a political resurgence, you want to take advantage of this rising tide of interest uh, if, if you're going to be any kind of a Messiah that these people want you to be. But Jesus has got something else. He doesn't mind being Messiah. It's just that he wants to define for himself what that means. So he plants a seed in this question, in the minds of his inquisitors, in the minds also of his disciples, the question doesn't get answered until after the day of Pentecost, 50 days from now. They don't get the question that he's asking. But he asks this question, David, whom we are looking for to come back as Messiah, let, let, play, play a thought game with me, a thought experiment with me. Why does David call the coming Messiah, who is his son, why does he call him his Lord? And he quotes the passage from Psalms. Do you follow the argument? So how can, this, how can Messiah both be the son of David, which we are, you're expecting, but also the Lord of David, which nobody has on the radar screen at all? Because David is recognizing in the Messiah one who is superior to himself. And you just want a derivative of David. So David is expecting something different than you are. I wonder who's right. Because David wrote, he says, by the Holy Spirit. And where do your political pretensions come from? Your own desires, your own beliefs, that if we just run the bums out and elect our own bums, everything will be better. We've been through the election cycle a few times. Anybody recognize that's not going to work this time or last time. Whoever we elect is going to be like whoever we didn't elect over time. That's how it works in political system with humans in power. Is anybody else not noticing this? Are you, are you tracking with me? So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play your silly little game. I'm not going to do this. If you can't get what I'm about, i.e. that David, the Messiah, the, David is expecting a Messiah that has... Uh, has, has, has uh, the, the uh, capacity over him as Lord, then you're not going to be able to get the rest of what I'm about. So that's kind of where he's going uh, on there, and then he ends that. And notice the large crowd is listening to him with delight. 
But Jesus isn't finished yet. He has asked them a question. They are now silent. And now Jesus goes on the attack. Now, I know you might not want to think about Jesus as on the attack, but I want you to notice what he does here. Verse 38, chapter 12. As Jesus taught, he said, Watch out for the teachers of the law, or scribes, or lawyers, experts. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to be greeted in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men as these will be punished most severely. How many of you know that there were people who fit his description exactly in the audience listening to him? Jesus did not care what people thought of him, for or against. That's important. So what is he doing here? He's picking on this last group that has come, these scribes, these lawyers, these attorneys, these, you know, kind of insert lawyer joke here, kind of, kind of, and he's saying, you people have figured out how to turn the law that God intended as the way to follow him. You figured out how to turn it in on itself and made it a way for you to make money. You figured out a way to use your expertise in the law to turn the whole system in knots and make it unworkable except for the experts who know how to work it. Which, as it turns out, happens to be. But that's not good enough for you. You also want to be regarded by the people in your culture as superior beings because of your intelligence or expertise or talents or whatever it is. So what do you do? And then he, 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 this kind of this thumbnail sketch, this caricature, he says, they, watch out for these people. Here's how you can tell, what, tell who they are. They walk around in flowing robes. Now, the tech, it's a technical term here. It's not just talking about long garments. He's talking about the kinds of clothing that a high priest or priests would wear. Remember, we are in high holy days right now. We're heading towards Passover. The priests are gathered in and around the temple precincts to prepare for the celebration that is coming at the end of the week. They have events taking place each night of the week that involves these priests, these men, who are standing in, in representation to God uh, and praying and interceding for the people, serving a religious and important function in the culture. Do you, you with me? And you can identify them by the clothes they wear. However, you can buy those same clothes at Brooks Brothers. So the scribes, who have no right to wear them because they're not priests, have gone to the same tailors and got them to make great flowing robes, so they can wander around in the temple precincts and other people think that they are religiously significant. Why? Oh, did you notice where else they're wandering around? It says, oops, back it up. Who's up there? Nobody. Okay, so it's, sorry, just I'm hoping by command I can make the thing back up. Look at it. Do you see what the last word is? 
greeted with respect where? So they're not content to simply walk around in the temple where priests show up. These guys put on their tuxedos and go to Vaughn's so that people seeing them will believe that they're important folks, that they're on business. They, they drive their limousines to Albertsons and, and, and wander around so that people will greet them as being, oh, I don't know who you are, but I need to avert my eyes. I don't think, I don't recognize you as somebody important, but you're wearing the uniform and you're driving the car, so you must be somebody important. They love to be called rabbi. They love the adulation of the crowd. And Jesus is saying, this is what they're doing. They are, are, are doing this to be noticed. They want to have the most important seats in the synagogues. They want to have the places of honor at the banquets. They want people to recognize them as somebody. Meanwhile, is anybody else noticing the emperor has no clothes? Can I just call it out for what it is? These guys have gotten their great flowing robes by devouring widows' houses. They have defrauded the weakest and most vulnerable members of the society and now they are parading their wealth and their position and their power. They want everybody to salute. They want everybody to stand up when they come in the room. They want everybody to notice them. And how did they get there? They got there by ripping off people who had no voice. They got there by, by, by stealing through fraud people who have no one to speak for them. They're going to get theirs. Their punishment will be most severe. They even make a show of lengthy prayers. How did these guys do this? I've, just some study on this. There's six, five or six ways, and pardon me for reading this. I couldn't memorize it all. They would accept payment for legal assistance in other words, they're the attorneys, they're the experts, so they would accept payment for legal assistance at a matter of law, even though payment was forbidden by the law. Except we don't call it payment. What do we call it? Can you say bribe? Can you say graft? Anybody done any business in, in, in two-thirds world countries? It, 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 often it's a matter of you just got to grease the palms of the border crossing. You got to get, uh, if you want your stuff out of customs, you got to, you, you know, you pay the, pay the tax, pay the tax. It's not legal, but if you want your stuff, you got to do it. These guys had, had, had master's degrees in graft. Uh, but, you know, this is a very complicated case. I have no idea how the judge is going to argue. With, I have no idea how this is going to be decided. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. I will put a good word in for you. It's going to cost me a little bit. Uh, can you? Can you? Can, no. I, I just. I. I don't even know if this is going to get on the court docket. I. I really don't know if anybody's actually going to hear your case. Now, I could probably make a difference there. It'll cost you a little bit, but you might get a good outcome. That's how it works. And Jesus says, shame on you. Then, he, then they act in the capacity of lawyers and cheat the widows out of their estates. Here, sign this. Oh, you can't read? Let me just tell you what it says. 
sign here. Uh, you signed your property over to me. It's, your signature is right here. See how that works? Or scribes freeload on the hospitality of widows that take advantage of them. They mismanage their estates. They took money from, uh, from women in return for the benefit of intercessory prayer. Can you imagine somebody being paid to pray? They took houses as pledges for debts that had no chance of realistically being repaid. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that this was 2,000 years ago, that we don't have to worry about any of these kinds of things now, that these kinds of folks are, are pure D above board. Aren't you? Jesus said, the poor you have with you always which means you're always going to have also people who take advantage of the poor. That's what he's after. These are the guys who want you to think highly of them in their religious roles, but have gotten that way by ripping off people who have no voice. It's not going to go well for them at the end. But he's not done yet. Verse 41. Jesus sits down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Call his disciples to himself. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, guys. This poor widow has put in more to the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. This is a stunning passage, and it sets us up for this next... This, by the way... This is the last straw for Jesus. He's had enough. Now he's going to move very aggressively towards the cross. So what's the last straw? Back it up. Jesus sits down, takes advantage of the, of the opportunity. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this. What culture would set up a place of giving with an amphitheater of, of where people could watch other people give? a culture that is more concerned about the giving than they are about the giver. A culture that labels or understands value to be attached to amount. Those are the kinds of people who would establish a scenario like this. Do, do you see where he's going with this? Now, I don't know about you. Does anybody get a little creeped out with Jesus watching people give? Does that make anybody a little just like nervous? Holy cow, he's really paying attention to this kind of stuff. Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows 2,000 years ago, and I suspect he knows today, that money is no value except as a marker of value. It measures what we believe to be important. You with me? That's how, how it measures what we believe to be important. For us, the other thing is time. You look at your checkbook, 
we used to have those. We don't use them anymore. But they used to actually, you have to write things in them, and they had carbon paper. It was, it was so cool. Anyway, um, and, and, and you look at your calendar. You look at those two, two things, and you can tell what the values are. Jesus knows this. So here he's, he's, taking, he's sitting and watching as people give. And he's not watching first what, he's watching how. I don't usually like the new um, uh, international version, but this one gets it exactly right. Look at verse 41. Um, can you back me up a little bit? There we go. So, 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 so uh, it, it, it says, uh, it, it, well, this, this version doesn't do it, so now I got it wrong. But anyway, um, we're, uh, oh, yeah, it does. Down the last line. Do you see what they're doing? Many rich people, what? Through in large amounts. Through in. Now, why would they do that? Because you get this, you know, the, the kind of the NBA all-star slam dunk thing going on, right? The guys are throwing in. Now, why are they doing that? Because they want the resonance of their throwing their coins into the pot to resonate throughout the temple square so everybody says, whoa. Right? What are they doing? They're giving so that they can be noticed to be giving. They're throwing in large amounts. Jesus, God doesn't need your money. But he needs you. That's why he wants your money. Because he knows that where your money is, your heart follows. We don't talk a whole lot about money around here for all kinds of good reasons. Not nearly as much, by the way, as Jesus does. He talks about money more than he talks about prayer, more than he talks about love. Isn't that, a, isn't that interesting? Now, why does he do that? Because he knows the kind of people we are. <laughs> so I, I want to I sit with this for a minute especially at this time, and Darren and I have been praying through this a lot in the, the leadership team. I just, I, this is a critical time in the, in, the, in the season of our church. It really is. And I think this passage comes at an exactly the right time. Here's, here's the deal. What we're trying to do during the Advent conspiracy, during the Advent season, saying, and, and, and we've done this all the way for, from the beginning. We've talked about radical generosity and so on and so forth as a primary way of pushing back against the relentless pressure of consumerism to, divide, to, to, to define ourselves by possessions, to, 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 to f define our worth by our bank account. And it's a relentless pressure. It, it is, it is, you, you, turn, you cannot watch TV for a half an hour without being bombarded by message after message after message that if you drive the right car, if you live in the right neighborhood, if you wear the right clothes, if you buy the right shoes, if you go to the right places, then, and all of these things will cost you money, then you will be somebody. Nobody notices that if you aren't somebody before you get the mouthwash, you won't be somebody after. Mouthwash is not going to help you. Neither will a Beamer or a Benz. They just won't. If you're not, if you have no sense of self as beloved and precious and chosen, 
son, daughter of God in whom he is well pleased, before you, 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 you sign up for the $399 a month lease, you won't have it afterwards. So what do we do? We say, here in, 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 in our watering cans, I love this imagery, sow some seeds, push back against the, the relentless pressure to consume and to define yourself as consumers. By the way, notice we're no longer customers. We're consumers. That's what we do. We pay people for the privilege of consuming, not noticing that it's our own tails we are consuming. We are eating ourselves alive. And what we're trying to do here every Sunday is, is give you a place to push back against that self-definition by stuff. That's what we're trying to do. But secondly, giving is a mark of good stewardship. It's a way of saying, everything I have, I have received from God. I want to manage it well. But one of the things that underlies both of these that we don't talk a lot about is something that Jesus has got, I believe he's got in mind here. When the children of Israel were being formed as a nation, God thought it important that there be one tribe, one family, whose job it would be to keep the attention of the rest of the country focused on what made them precious and beloved. That is, that they were chosen by God. So a whole twelfth of the nation of Israel was set aside for the purpose of helping people pay attention to who they were, reminding them on a regular basis, you're not the crops you raise. You are the child of God. You are the sheep of His pasture. You're not the latest prophet in your business. You are the people of God. And they would superintend the feasts. They would superintend the worship on a, on a weekly basis. They would manage the sacrifices that would keep us aligned in a world of chaos, calibrated to the truth of who we were. One whole tribe whose function was to do nothing else but remind us who we were. And so important was this to God that he thought it's worthwhile asking you people to contribute to the support of those people and to the support of the systems within which they work. That's how important it is. Because I don't know about you, but the relentless pressure to forget who I am is huge in our culture, is it not? And in that culture as well, it is the same. So Jesus is picking up on this Reminding them, I think reminding us in this context, that the reason you give is not, again, because God needs your money, but because you need people like pastors and buildings like churches to remind you of what's important. All kinds of different ways of doing church. But let's be very clear. You're not paying a pastor's salary. You're not paying to keep the lights on. You're not paying to do that. You're not paying a bill. You are paying somebody to remind you who you are. That's what you're doing when you tithe. That's what you do when you give in a church offering. That's what's happening. That's why it's important. Now, the average church in America functions on somewhere between 15 and 18% of what it reasonably ought to. 
just need you to sit with that for a minute. That means 20% of the average people in an average congregation give 80% of the income of that congregation. And I can, I, this has been const, constant since 1956. What does that tell us? It tells us that we've forgotten who we are. I remember one time having a conflict with one of my members who was a fairly generous giver, as it turned out. I never knew how much anybody gave. I have no idea what you people are doing, so I can be an equal opportunity offender this morning. But he informed me how much he gave every, every year. He was throwing it in to hear the resonance. Because he asked, do you know how much I give? No, I don't. What? I haven't told you? No. I asked not to know. I don't want to know. Well, let me tell you. And if you don't stop preaching this stuff, that I'm going to stop giving. Oh, brother. Oh, oh, brother. Oh, we need to go to the altar right now. We got a couple of major problems here. You think you can control what I preach by whether you give or don't give? Really? Is that what you're really saying? That might work on Wall Street, might work on Madison Avenue, might work where you work, but this is the kingdom of God. That does not work here. In fact, and this is where my carnal nature came out. <laughs> if you stop giving, I'm going to start preaching harder on it because I'm hitting a nerve that needs probably to be hit. Or would you rather just repent now? <sighs> so he left. This is what Jesus is saying is happening. The Father God has designed a system to help you remember who you are and what have you done with it. You have turned it into a system of rules and regulations in which you wring out of people who can least afford it in the name of God money that they can't afford to give because you have told them that God won't love them or God won't be pleased with them unless they give this temple tax. I know that we normally hear this story as Jesus affirming the sacrifice of the widow, and I think it probably is that. But he's not coming onto this story in affirmation. He's coming onto this story in anger. What should this widow, in Jesus' understanding, have done with her money? Kept it. That would have been most pleasing to God. How does that feel? It's frustrating for us, isn't it? Because we think Jesus is all about sacrificial giving. He is, but he's out of giving out of relationship. Not giving out of duty, not giving out of obligation, not checking the box so you can say you gave. And this poor lady had been so tweaked around the axle by these scribes and Pharisees that she thought she had no other choice but to put her last two copper coins. They didn't even make a sound as they hit the bottom of the bin. Not a sound. Somebody asked me between the break, between the two services, well, 
what do I do then? I want to give. I want to give out of generosity, but I can't pay my bills right now. Be a good steward. Pay your bills. Give out of relationship. Give out of love. Give out of gratitude for what God has done. And if you're at a, at a hard place, if you're at a stuck place, do you really think God is going to hate you if you don't tithe yourself into oblivion? Really? Come on! That's what he's pushing back against. He wants us to give out of relationship. He wants us to give out of love. He wants us to give intelligently. He wants us to give as a marker of who we are. And I want you to give the same way. I would love this congregation to be characterized as a congregation of 100%. Because Jesus is very clear on this. The wealthy people are giving what? Out of their wealth. I don't know if you've done the math on this, but if you make a million dollars a year and give away $100,000 a year, you're going to be fine. You can live on 900 k if you're careful. I mean, you have to be careful. You really got to slice the, you know, you got to watch the budget. But if you're, if you're on Social Security, if you're struggling to make ends meet, if you are, 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 are really working it hard and, and you're making 25 k a year, $2,500 is a huge chunk of change for you to be putting in a thing. And Jesus is just saying, this isn't right. This isn't what we're after. We're missing the point here, folks. You've turned something that was intended to remind you who you are, and you've turned it into something that has made you what you aren't. A machine. A mechanical giver without heart or intent. Besides which, $100,000 doesn't even touch their heart. That's the problem. It's not about amount. How many, it's not about amount. It's about heart. It's about relationship. Now, this is um, hard for us because we want Jesus to celebrate the woman for giving everything, and I think he does. But what he's really doing, in my view, is lamenting a religious system that had, had made her think that's what God required of her. Does that make sense? Um, I want this congregation to be freely giving. I really do. Because it will be a great way to push back against the pressures that we all face. Not out of duty, not out of obligation. Out of love and relationship with the Father. What we want. When we do that, and uh, when we do that, it will be transformative in a culture that defines itself by material possessions. And and I don't know what that will mean for you. And I'm not going to tell you even if I did know, because you and Jesus got to work it out. It's not your money; it's His. And I'm not going to assume in every case that means you giving more. I'm just not going to assume that because I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Some of you it might. Others of you it might be, no, I'm heading toward bankruptcy. I need to tweak this a bit. Okay, do it. Do it for the love of God and do it because God loves you. Does that make sense? Um, I don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to end it this way.
I'm going to challenge you to hear seriously these three stories. They're kind of, they're, they're, they're related. Do you hear where he's going? But I've tried to hit them in three different places today. And you might be responding in different ways to, to, to what we're, we're talking about. So there are places for you to pray. Pete and the team are going to come back up, and they're just going to give us some space to respond uh, in, in ways that, that you feel uh, drawn by the Spirit. Um, it might be that God has addressed you on some issues financially. It might be that he has addressed you on some, some issues of the, of, the, of the ways that we live for show. It might be that he addressed you on the tennis match uh, where Jesus is disappointing us because he's not doing what we want him to do. But I'm going to ask you to respond to how he is addressing you this morning. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, there will be folks available to do that. And we want to just create some space for us to respond to the Spirit. All right? Our hearts are open. Well